Welcome to the podcast is dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. The Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. This is where you get your answers to your coaching questions. And my name is Coach Jonathan Lee, and I'm here with Coach Chad Timmerman. Hey, everybody. And our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hello. And we're going to answer more of those coaching questions today. You can get them to us by going to trainerroad.com slash podcast, or you can use that hashtag AskTrainerRoad on Twitter or Instagram, or you can find us on Snapchat at TrainerRoad, and you can ask your questions there. And we'll do our best to, to answer them. And if you ask them via Snapchat, we may even respond there. So you can find this podcast on iTunes. You can find it on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever else you aggregate and listen to your podcasts. You can leave us reviews there. We really like five-star reviews. It's a, it's a favorite thing of ours. So if you we do read feel them all. we deserve it. <laughs> if you do feel we deserve it, then by all means, give us a five-star review. If not, email us first, and then we'll find out how we can make it better. <laughs> um, so let's kick things off. Uh, today, we're going to start with Jesse's question. And he says, for a Midwest-located racer where there aren't any, really any long, sustained climbs and many crits, is it better to be 5 watts per kilogram at 70 kilograms or at 75 kilograms? I find a strong correlation between my FTP and body weight and seems like they more or less end up at the same ratio. Yeah, so Jesse, if you're a, a crit rider, sounds like you're largely a crit rider and I'm guessing pretty flat criterium rider. Um, it comes down to a couple of things. I mean, uh, typically riders try to keep their strength to weight ratio or, or their, their, um, their weight down and then power up, but you're talking the same ratio here. So it kind of depends on the, the technicality of the course and then how well you ride that course. So if it's a, a really turny course, really technical and you can get away, stay away, and you're not decelerating and accelerating out of the corners a lot, you know, you're either positioned toward the front or you're on a breakaway sort of thing, then more watt, the more watts, the better. And if that extra five kilograms translates to, to greater um, raw wattage, then that could weigh in your favor. But if you're a rider who uh, tucks back in the field and suffers from the accordion effect, maybe aren't, you're not particularly well positioned and you have to accelerate a lot, then that's an extra five kilograms you have to tow out of every one of those turns. And the more technical the course, the more turns there are, the more decelerations, accelerations there are, the more times you have to, have to put out work um, needlessly. So it's kind of a question of how you ride it and, and the courses you ride. Yeah, this is a really good question because five watts per kilogram is not the same or four or three, whatever it is on a flat course versus a 10% grade. Um, there's a really good website called analytic cycling. And I used to do this. I would, I would take one of our longer climbs here called Geiger and I would put in different numbers, like just like you're saying now. So if I was at four Watts a kilo at this weight, how fast would I go up it? And as that four Watts per kilo, this weight, how fast would I go up that site? You can put in the the grade and it's pretty much just a physics model and it's, you can apply it for cycling. And there is a cutoff point where, uh, if you're four Watts per kilo or five Watts per kilo at a lighter weight, you'll have a bigger advantage going uphill versus someone at the same ratio, um, to you. Mm -hmm. But then on, on the flip side, when you're on like a flat crit like this, um, like you, you say you're doing, I would totally say the heavier weight would be better. Um, because you're, you're, you're going to be fighting a lot against air resistance and you can just mm -hmm. smoke people in my, in my own being a tall guy, six, six, um, and being a bigger rider, like, uh, probably 84, 85 kilograms, uh, on the hilly races, I'll really struggle. And you know, if I get top 10, that would be really good day. But on flat crits, I can, I can win them a lot because I think 
proportionally to those people, you get a big advantage being able to put out, you know, if, if you're at, what, what is that? Five Watts. It, it's you, putting out, you know, 350 Watts versus some other guys putting out 280 Watts on the flats. You're going to smoke them. Yeah. But in, in your case, Nate, you're talking more steady output where you, you get off the front and kind of ride away from the field. So you're, you're more attacking and smooth, but if you had to punch it out of every corner and you had to drag that extra five kilograms up to speed every time that starts to take a big toll. So what yeah, I'm saying true. is, is that that extra weight can work against you if you don't ride very efficiently, you have to yeah. basically reaccelerate that extra mass every time you come out of a corner, but, every but time you try that, to catch a wheel. But will that over... So I agree on that, and maybe it's not as big as as advantage. But I I, I don't have a, we need a best bike split guy here. But I bet you the extra watts that he would get at that same five watts per kilo would yeah. would be a greater advantage if it was a flat course. Probably, and especially and you, could, you could totally geek out on all this for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's the thing. It's it's a constant trade off that you have. A, a small guy like me in criteriums. Um, I have to ride very intelligently, but the reason that I have to ride intelligently is because like Nate said, my power isn't as high. I don't weigh that much. Um, so to ride at a, at a given ratio, I don't need to have that much, you know, that high of an FTP, but because of that dealing with wind resistance, especially here with some of the, like the flat crit that we have here in town, um, it's always windy and it's always really fast. I have to really ride intelligently to, to cut that wind resistance down. However, what I am going to try to do is make it surgy because then I'm going to make people that are carrying more weight have to constantly, you know, slow that mass down, speed it back up to make it more difficult. It's, there's kind of a trade-off. If, if you're a big guy and you know how to ride intelligently, in other words, you know, not just if you're riding off the front, that's one thing, but you know how to ride smart, stay out of the wind. And then also if you can somehow marshal things or control things to keep the pace steady you're going to be at a big advantage, um, over, over other people. If you do have a little more weight with you. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like that crit podcast we did where Pete Morris, his FTP is close to 400 Watts, but he's like 190 pounds and yeah, his, a lot of his, yeah, yeah, 200. So, uh, but a lot of his, uh, techniques are, so he doesn't slow down in the corners, right? Cause he doesn't mm-hmm. want to have that same thing. And yeah, exactly. I, and that's strategically something you can definitely utilize too. So if you know you're racing against a guy like Pete, who's got mad wattage, but he's also got a lot of weight to cart around, you can hit him and hit him and hit him and hit him and try to try to kind of uh, take some wind out of his sails by, by, by gassing it with these short, hard accelerations, knowing that every time you do that, he's going to fall off or he's going to suffer for it just a little bit. So you can also employ this strategically. (laughs) You got your number, Pete. (laughs) It's tough though. I mean, like, so Let's say Jonathan uh, at five watts would, I don't know, around 320 or something like that. And Pete's at 400 and Jonathan's going into the wind at 320 Mm, and Pete's at 400. He has a a draft, right? Or he can Mm -hmm. accelerate and pick up his wheel quickly. I'm I'm just saying it's not not as simple as as that. Uh, It's not. In general, yeah, on flat crits, the bigger guys, on flat crits, the bigger guys generally win. Yes. Typically, yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Um, yeah, they'll always do better on big flat. <laughs> a lot of racers here in Reno, especially with masters racers, they tend to, let's just say they tend to, to carry more weight. We won't say what type of weight they're carrying <laughs> around, but you know, with age things tend to accumulate and, uh, they, they, they try to avoid those climbing races or the races with undulations, surges and everything else. They love the flat races where the speed stays up. So 
Uh, David's question is next. He says, hey guys, terrific podcast. And this one's a, a little detailed and lengthy, but I think we can extract what we need out of this. So he says, listening in and dreaming of summer riding has saved me numerous times from the dreary Monday morning commute to London. Two questions, if I may. First, how best should I use the form fitness and fatigue chart on Strava or training peaks to ensure I peak optimally? Do you want to continue chat or do you want to just cover that part first? Yeah, I think uh, we, we can continue as long as you understand that he's just talking the whole CTL, ATL, TSB metrics, which are basically just measures of your fitness, um, your, your uh, freshness, and then, of course, your uh, fatigue. Great. So he says, I trashed myself, trashed myself on a training camp to Mallorca, and he links us to that. Um, it's 176 TSS per day, it looks like. Um, and my fitness and fatigue rocketed with four weeks of my fit of with four weeks to my multi-stage a event. Should I now accept that I'm close to peak fitness and be controlling the rate at which my fatigue ATL reduces such that it just about equals, um, the form or TSB on day one of the event. So he's talking about his form or his fitness being in one spot. And he's thinking, should that just stay there? And then should he work on controlling his freshness or managing his fatigue so that he can have good form on race day? Um, he says, uh, let's see. Um, he says no more epic additions of TSS, but enough to keep fitness, but allow sufficient recovery from fatigue. Or do I need to allow fatigue to drop off and allow me with a positive fitness or TSB and TSB is training stress balance. Um, how much would you recommend? Hopefully you can draw what I need to need to out of that. Uh, but the key question is how to use those charts to best effect. Hey, so, Chad, uh, let's before you this answer one. this, Chad, let me, sure. I'm going to define a few things. And, and one, this yeah. is going to work really well with our training camps coming out because mm -hmm. it's like yep. the exact question. But basically, it's, it's, if you're not familiar with the ATL, CTL, and TSB, this could be a really confusing question. But I heard it once, and this is how it, it, I, I like to think of it. So um, at the end of the Tour de France, you have a whole bunch of fitness but you're very tired, right? So like you'll be very, very tired, but you're probably really fit. So your form, you know, they might, a lot of times in racing, they call someone's form. That would be your form is very low. The difference between your your freshness or your uh, fitness and your fatigue. fatigue. Yeah. Sometimes though, you'll have a lot of fitness. You go through a training plan and you'll taper off and your fatigue will be low too. So you have a lot of fitness and, a, and just barely any fatigue. And then you'll have a very high form or be very fresh and ready to race. So in this case... Mm -hmm. He has a whole bunch of fitness and a whole bunch of fatigue and his form is low. So he's asking, how do I manage that to get my form up to be able to race? Yeah, exactly. So it comes down to fitness form and, or fitness fatigue and, and that yields your form. So in, in David's case, he's just accumulated a whole bunch of fatigue. Um, and now he's working his way out from it. The fit, the fitness is there. He just has to unearth it. And his question is, you know, where is his form optimal? And this is subjective. Unfortunately, you can't just say, bring your TSB or your form down to a zero balance. And that's going to be the best race. Some riders do well with a slightly negative stress balance. So they have to have a, you know, their form's not quite optimized, but they don't want their fitness to fall too far and their fatigue to, to, to fall off as, as well. So the, the question is, where do I race best? And, and some racers carrying a little bit of fatigue. So being a little on the negative side of that training stress balance race better. Some need a highly positive one. Some of them, you know, right, right about break even. So the, the unfortunate long answer to your question, David, is you have to determine what works best for you. Um, I haven't seen too many riders who race well with a highly negative stress balance. 
So, you know, right around negative 10 is kind of the cutoff. And then I've seen plenty of riders who need a really high one, like plus 30, plus 40. It's, it's kind of ridiculous. And then the riders who race consistently, you know, that stress balance uh, just kind of hovers right around zero. They're either a little below, a little high, and they race consistently well. So it's really up to you to kind of put this together over the next couple of races, watching that stress balance, see what yields the best outcome. And for people who don't know this, you can Google this, uh, training, these are called training peaks metrics and they put it, it's basically, um, different averages on your TSS is how all these numbers come up. But Chad, w- the, the problem with this too, that it, it gets so <laughs> into the details, like I need this 10 TSB mm-hmm. is that it's not taking in account my it's sleep, so many my other work factors. stress. Yeah. My, yeah. my even caffeine mm-hmm. intake, uh, what's going yep. on with my family, my work stress, motivation. I mean, honestly, I've, I've gotten yeah, into races dead tired, but psychologically I felt great. And then, and then vice versa. I'm really refreshed. My body's, I have no real excuses, but you know, work took a super toll on me or I'm having relationship issues or something that really pulls on me psychologically. And I, you know, I race poorly. So yeah, this is just the numbers behind it. So, you know, don't get so lost in the weeds that you, you stop seeing how many other things can affect your race performance. Well, well, let's take this question a little bit bigger. So let's say someone does a training camp and they do, or they do a week of very intense training. How should they come back into it? Uh, well, again, and as usual, it's, it's subjective. I've, I've seen people who will structure like a, a crash training block for lack of a better description, a really intense training block, literally two weeks out from their most important event. So they'll go five, six, even seven days of super high intensity, really beat themselves up but then spend the next seven days leading up to their event. You know, they'll have a day off and then they'll do easy stuff for two or three days. Then they'll have another couple days off and they'll roll into their race fresh off of two days of doing nothing and have the best performances of their season. So again, you have to figure out, you know, how does my body respond best? I've, I've, some people get stronger over the course of a stage race. Some people get weaker over the course, you know, they start to fall apart. Um, it's, it's again, really subjective and takes a lot of experimentation and paying attention. Well, some other ways I know in like when people do an Ironman race, they usually like after the race, they'll maybe swim that day and then they'll get into, um, pretty much for a week they'll do, um, maybe an hour or less aerobic work and they won't do anything really, really hard if they have a whole bunch of TSS and they feel pretty good after that. Exactly. And that's a safe bet. There's not much to be gained coming off of something that trashes your body, like a, like a full distance triathlon. You're not going to gain any fitness in in the following week. Yeah. In the following week. Yeah. My best race has been exactly one week after an Ironman. I did a sprint. So I did the Ironman and I, I I did very poorly. Uh, I don't think I went up to it. And then the next week I kind of did what you said, where I was doing like a little few workouts, you know, I had the Sunday next triathlon. I felt horrible. And then during the race, I was just, everything was firing. I, yeah. I missed out on, it was a small race, but I missed out on first by like 10 seconds, which was really super uh, lame, but and there you go. Still, and that, it, was, and that's, it was really, really good. And that's how your body responded. So, you know, maybe another athlete would take two weeks, maybe another athlete um, takes yeah. three or age. four and age, age, right? age absolutely factors into it and sex factors into it. And, you know, the type of athlete you are factors into it. And, and there's also a psychological component. Like I've come off of three day stage races that, you know, went Friday, Saturday, Sunday, take Monday off and then race really well Tuesday night. My body, my body's tired, but I, I just, you know, I have like this psychological boost. I just did something that's so much harder than the race I'm in right now. And for whatever reason, I just kind of let myself off that mental hook and race really well. But then of course I crash really hard in, in the, in the subsequent days. Cause I'm just totally cooked, but there is also 
that psychological component to consider. So you, it sounds like you're pretty much saying is experiment, maybe write it down what you're doing and and yep. learn from your own self because it's yep. tough to prescribe a general uh, recovery period for everyone that's going to be optimum. Yeah, and that's that's just a sad fact of the matter. This is also so very subjective. Over time, you can start to draw correlations, and there's a lot of overlaps between all all riders. But uh, the the more specific you get, the more specific your events get, the higher uh, your level of performance rises. All this stuff has to be tracked and paid close attention to. I for for what it's worth, David, I've always found that I personally do much much better if I come into something not just one hundred percent rested, but I usually do a hard training block the week before a big event. And then that week coming into it, I'll make sure that I'm still keeping my intensity high, but I'm dropping my volume nice and low. Um, and I don't, I don't, you know, I, I, I'm not overly cautious before that event. That's what I've personally found to work best for me. So, um, that your next question, you say, uh, what are your thoughts on the benefits or otherwise of electronic over mechanical group sets. I'm about to buy a Bianchi Infinite and deliberating deliberating over whether to go for Ultegra DI2 or mechanical. Take it easy and thanks again. Um, I'll jump in first. Just this is a kind of a preference thing, but I've I've found that uh, they're they're kind of awesome. I mean, they're obviously pricey, but they're super reliable. They're uh, a little what bit of a that? pain. Them being electronic. Oh, I'm sorry. Electronic kit, yep. electronic group sets. So I haven't had the uh, luxury of using the SRAM ETAP yet, but I'm very much looking forward to it and have every intention of using it on, on every bike. Um, I have used DI2, both uh, Ultegra and Dura-Ace, and I've got the Dura-Ace on my TT bike, which I think is probably the best solution to, to a time trial situation. Um, but like I said, once you get past the setup or have somebody set it up, really reliable and consistent. Yeah, and uh, on Chad's TT bike, I can see it behind him right now. It is so, so clean mm. and amazing with BI2. And he can shift yeah. in both spots. It's really nice. So um, for me, I have I have DI2 on my road bike and on my uh, on my uh, TT bike. TT bike, it's like, it's a no-brainer because I can shift well out of the, um, out of the uh, air position, which is, or in the air position, either one, depending if you have a road or TT bike. I think that's mm-hmm. a huge advantage and it's all very clean. I, my bike actually could be a lot cleaner compared to Chad's. Um, on my road bike, I really, really like it having, um, you know, cross chain problems or anything like that. I don't have that with the I2. I can kind of do whatever I want. Although on my shiv, I have, I've recently had some problems with that, but we're going to buy some new chain rings. We think it's all worn out. Uh, I can say on my mountain bike, I have XX1, which is a SRAM and that shifts just as crisp mm-hmm. as DI2 ever has. And it's, uh-huh. it's, I'm really, really impressed with XX1. Every time I shift, no matter what load I'm in or what I'm doing, it's just immediate and sharp. So mechanical yeah. can be, I think, it, I think this is what John is going to say too, is mechanical, if set up right, can be just as crisp as, uh, yeah, as, I'll second uh, that. I've I've gone from electronic back to SRAM, which I had never used before, and I am as equally impressed with SRAM in general as as I have been with uh, electronic Ultegra and uh, so Durace. Maybe Chad and I were on the boat that for TT bikes, yes, uh, electronics the way to go because of the different options. But for road, if you can set it up right, go. You, you get lighter too, you know, with uh, mechanical, which is another big benefit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it all depends. I mean, so yes, we're, we're, you know, you're, you're definitely right in saying that the shifting action will be the same. 
if we're talking about the rear derailleur, uh, if you have a front derailleur on your mountain bike or on your road bike or anything else, you're going to get drastically better shifting with uh, DI2 than you're going to get with mechanical. Um, that's that's a huge benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, and the low maintenance part of things is very, very nice for that. It's pretty simple to set up your limits and then to make sure that the chain isn't going to drop off. Um that's that's a nice that's a very nice thing and one that definitely can't be over yeah, uh, or underestimated. That is a yeah. super good point. When it comes to front derailleur shifting, electronic all the way. I've, so I still good. have issues with with mechanical when I shift mm-hmm. when I shift rings, but electronic never missed. Yeah. So if you do have you know if you're on a mountain bike with a single ring or a TT bike or your road bike's built up with a single up front, I know that's getting it's pretty rare now, but it's getting more common for for different courses and. Um, I, I definitely, if you have a front derailleur and you can afford it, I would say go, go DI2 zero question on a TT bike, go DI2. Um, it's just going to make life so much easier there. Um, but with mountain bikes, um, currently like the, the XTR, if you can do use XTR, but then you can run a SRAM cassette in the back, then you're set. But otherwise it's not going to be worth it. And well, I guess now Shimano has a XT cassette that goes 1142, but SRAM goes 1042 and and 10 teeth all the way up to 42 teeth. That's a huge range. And that jump from 11 to 10 is big. So I've seen a lot of people actually run um, their XTR derailleur, their, their XTR DI2, but they have a SRAM cassette on there so they can get that range that they need. And then also keep in mind that if you're doing that, then up front, you don't want to be running a Shimano chain ring uh, because they are famous for not holding the chain on very well compared to the SRAM stuff. So run an aftermarket chain ring, or you might have to run a chain guide on there. So um, I think electronic is is by far and away better. Um, there are just some certain features that like SRAM has on their mechanical group sets that haven't made it over yet, uh, or that that... I should say are better than the Shimano options. Having said that, ETAP's out. I guarantee you we're going to see XX1 ETAP or whatever version of that in the next year or two. Um, and that'll change things too. So I'm all on board the the electronic drain. So Chad, uh, and not this Chad, but a different Chad. Uh, he says, Hi all, I'm new to cycling and trainer road, obviously, but oh, I, I don't know that, but have been binging on the podcast for a few weeks and have two unrelated questions. Number one, my natural cadence is low compared is low compared to the recommended pace. I'm naturally around 80 RPM and the workouts normally state that 85 to 95 is the sweet spot. So I did Mount Field the other day and the second interval had me work on my cadence. I stepped it up to around 85 RPM, but found that this put my power higher than intended for this interval by 10 to 15 watts. But if I went down a gear, I was five watts below. This is a question that we hear pretty frequently. In cases such as this, should I stay closer to the tar- closer to the target but below my power target, or is it better to overdo the target by a larger percentage if sustainable in the next gear? in order to keep my cadence up. So he's talking about not being able to hit your mark precisely due to gearing and cadence preference. So is it better to overshoot or is it better to undershoot? Yeah. So Chad, that's kind of a tough one. Um, ideally, well, well, power, you know, trumps pretty much every other metric. That's what we're aiming for in, you know, 95, 98% of the workouts is, is being close to target power. Cause we're shooting for a particular, uh, physiological adaptation. Um, being a little below, a little high, probably won't shift it too much in any case, but you're talking being slightly below or quite a bit above. So in your case, I would 
probably veer more toward going just a little under, and you're probably going to achieve most of what we're after without actually overdoing it. Um, the question becomes, you know, can you ride 10 or 15 Watts a little bit higher with that cadence and get through the workout and not feel flat afterwards? In which case, um, you're probably equally well served. In fact, you may find that that extra 10 or 15 Watts puts you closer to where you actually would be. You know, maybe your assessment's a little low, but you, you can give it a shot. And if you can get through the workout and it doesn't waste you being 10 or 15 Watts high, then I, I, in that case, I think that might be the better way to go. Um, user Chad, what coach Chad is saying. So that the time when you were five Watts below, like totally just raise it five Watts and up your cadence. So if, if it says we're going to, you know, work you around 85 or 90, but 94 puts you at the right wattage. And this is the, the intent of this is to try a higher wattage for this, for this interval. Just up, just go a little higher wattage, right, Chad? Like if oh, yeah, you're sure. saying go might... 110 and you can go mm -hmm. 113, just go 113 to hit the power target. Yeah, absolutely. The power target is is what we're after here. So whatever it takes to get there. And if that means riding at 80 RPM and then over time that comes up to 85, 95, that's fine. You don't have to nail that cadence target in, in every workout or really any workout for that matter. If you find something works better for you, yes, we recommend or I recommend the 85 to 95 RPM range. For most people, I think that's where they should be. It's just beneficial across the board, all things considered may not be for you and may not be for that workout maybe riding at 80 works maybe riding at 100 works um, you, you don't have to hold hard and fast to that 85 to 95 rpm range yeah that's one of the reasons we give a range and then one of the reasons why we also um a frequent product feature request that we get is for people to this. have like cadence targets on the screen and i think yep. that's because the prior experience for a lot of people with either spin classes or, and I mean like spin classes, like, you know, like the dancey ones that you do to, to, to electronic house music and everything else. Um, those and any type of like videos that were instructional videos and you're on the trainer, they generally gave you cadence and something else because we didn't have power then. But since we have power now, power is such a better metric. We don't want you focusing on a specific number with your cadence, we want you to just focus on your power. The on-screen text takes care of any type of suggestions, but you'll notice that we almost always give you a range. It's never as if we want you pedaling at 97 RPM or something specific like that, because we want you to hit your power targets with precision and power trumps all when we're talking about how to measure your effort. Yeah. Jonathan's completely right here. So, and that is exactly why we don't have cadence targets in the apps, because unless you have a kicker, or a smart trainer, if you, without the proper gearing, you can't, we can't say hit 95 RPM and be at 230 Watts. You have to have right. the right gearing for that. So it's just, it's the range. So first focus on, so in general, just if you can tell if, if the Chad's telling you an instruction te instructional text to be at a lower or higher cadence, you can go over or under that, but just try to follow along and get the gist of it, but nail your power. Yeah, exactly. In cases like that, when I say a slower cadence, it's just a slower than usual cadence. So in your case, you hover around 80. So maybe you'll do that drill at 70 faster cadence will be 90. So again, they're, these ranges, they're ranges first off and they're flexible ranges. Secondly, hmm. uh, your next question, Chad, you say, as I'm new to cycling and we are already into May, I don't have any particular races or anything that I'm targeting. I just want to be a better all-around cyclist. I'm currently doing sweet spot-based low volume, but I was curious what you would recommend when realistically I won't target any real rides or races until next spring. Do I just stick with general for a full year? Or And I assume he's talking about general build, and then uh, we have some more plans I'm sure Chad will talk about after that for that type of a purpose. 
Or should I wait until I know more about my weaknesses and tweak the training to hit those? Um, Chad, being that you're new to endurance training, um, mo- most of your work is probably going to be uh, in a general manner, a general of a general nature anyway. Um, and I'm not sure if you're talking about sticking with a general approach or general build for a full year, but I'll reiterate what I've said in the past and the, the body responds in kind of a wave like manner or a cyclical manner. You can't just push your fitness high and then expect it to stay there. Um, we're either gaining fitness or losing fitness constantly. And sometimes it's really minute changes. Sometimes they're very obvious, uh, and, and vast changes, but in any case you, you build fitness and then it has to decline at some point. Then you build fitness, obviously, or ideally, to a higher point than than your last high point, and then it declines a little. And we move in, in this kind of wave format uh, constantly, whether it's over the course of you know a six week training block, or over the or eight week training block, or over the course of a season, or over the course of a few years. So you're going to get benefit out of out of the general training for quite some time, but at some point you're going to have to start challenging yourself in different ways. Um, whether or not you have events to put behind those different challenges, uh, remains to be seen. Maybe you'll start to take, uh, or you'll start to target things as your fitness grows, but in any case, um, you have to just kind of abide by that ebb and flow nature of training and, you know, uh, shortly detraining and retraining sort of, sort of manner. Chad. So to build off what Chad said, this is tough. <laughs> Everyone's got Chad. You should have lots of name. Chads. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I'd say go the general build and then for, I would just like Chad said, I would go into a, to a specialty and kind of treat it like you would a, like you would a normal season where you have, you're gonna have an off season kind of in late fall and then start over again. And for, um, whatever specialty, I would just pick whatever floats your boat. So exactly. whatever you, whatever you like to keep your motivation up. So if you like short punchy stuff, do like the crit plan. If you like longer stuff, do the 40 K TT. Um, I, I think if you're, especially if you don't have a real goal, the, the big thing to fight against is going to be, um, uh, motivation. So do that. And maybe you do a rebuild where you do general build again, another specialty, or maybe you, um, based on the races you're going to do next year or next season, if they're in like February, you might even take a couple weeks off or a week off and then start base training for mm-hmm. that next season and, and kind of mm-hmm. go back from that. But I wouldn't just, as Chad said, be like, I'm going to hit general build over and over and over and over and over again until I get into season. Cause that, that just won't work. You'll burn out. Yeah. You're, you're burn out. Uh, forgive me. You'll burn out mentally and physically there with that too. I, I, for me having that change in my training mentally is extremely motivating. So yeah, and there's, really help. there's actually another point I want to make here. I, I typically say, you know, you do your base training and then you move into build and specialty. And then if you're going to do anything in the same season, you go back to build and then you respecialize and back to build and respecialize. If, if you have enough for three different seasons in, in or, uh, yeah, three different seasons in a year. Um, in the case of new cyclists though, you can return to that base phase anytime. In fact, if you went base and then build, and then even went back to base and then build and specialize in any case, you're, you're more toward that, that beginner end of the spectrum. So more base and more build in, in lieu of more specialization. So feel free to include your base training, even if you only return to base for a couple weeks sort of thing, rather than repeat an entire base cycle, you're probably going to find greater benefit out of working on your aerobic efficiency and your strength to, to, to the same extent, or maybe a lesser extent than uh, a more highly tuned athlete who has something very specifically that he or she's working toward. I almost feel like I should do that, Chad, with my, my surgery and like that pretty much yeah. a month off. And then I, 
it's the awful part part is I was so pumped at mountain bike racing, <laughs> but they all happened in like the last two months when I've not when I've been having problems <laughs> and there's only like two more races I can that I can find this there's year. A, there's a we got North Star the the resort that we have up Isn't here. Isn't that crazy though? Bike parks. That's... No, no, no. They're great. Oh, it's not? In fact, okay. they're they're even less technical than the courses that you, the course you did in Nevada City. So, and okay. those races are awesome. You got races, okay. Nate. We're I'll, good. Okay, good. Never mind. I'm going all in. <laughs> uh, Michael, he says first a quick compliment. You guys rock. Solid program. Really well done. Thanks, Michael. Uh, on to his question. I live in the Northeast and after months of being stuck indoors on the trainer, I have little motivation to train indoors once it is finally warmed up enough to train outdoors. Now that I haven't been doing much indoor work, I have to confess that I feel a bit lost without the structured, structured training of trainer road. Do you plan to release a companion? And he says in quotes on the bike workouts that can be done outside. While I recognize that there are a thousand training plans out there, it seems that one developed by trainer road to complement its indoor plans might be just the thing. Thank you and keep uh, up the great work. Uh, yeah. So I actually tried to build this like two years ago and I, I don't want to promise anything, but where we're at right now with, with how we can program gardens and stuff, we're not quite there and I don't think people are going to have iPhones on it. And there's, there's, there's a bunch of problems we have to get through first and train road as a company first we need to get our android out and our mac out app out and let you be able to pull in outside workouts from other software first but the actual doing a train road workout outside there's we have some really good ideas around it but it's not it's kind of in the back of my mind it's not something that we're working on just at this second because there's other things we need to kind of focus on in our core to make sure you guys still have the 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 best possible training that you can um, it, it, and it's outside, it's really hard to do some of these workouts. We'd have to reduce the the types of workouts just because of terrain. And that's, that's part of the problems with outside. Uh, we have right now an employee in from Wisconsin and he's like, I can't do any climbs longer than like four minutes because, okay. so it's really hard for him to do, uh, like 20 minutes. Cause it'll be kind of rolling like a 20 minute interval because he'll have that downhill and he can't keep his power up. So yeah. it's hard then to prescribe something. Uh, when you're, when you have to, if you have a totally flat course or really long climbs, you can do stuff, but if it's rolling at all, it gets really tough. So right now d don't expect anything soon on this and maybe someday we'll get there. Yeah. And, and the, just to kind of redefine our motivation for all of this, our, our goal is to make people faster and to be the best at that. And that's why we feel like we still have room to refine the, the current experience you guys have and make it even better. Um, and outside interval training is tough. Um, mm -hmm. we, we definitely understand where you're coming from though. Right. I mean, geez, Nate and Nate and I were just talking about this a, a couple of weeks ago about how training outside. And since we're riding mountain bikes more often, you know, we tend to go outside and I honestly find Michael that it's tough, but at the same time, once I get into a rhythm, it's really, really motivating. I'll do a low volume plan in the summer and that low volume plan will have me on the trainer three days a week. And for those three days a week, they're short workouts. I knock out my structure really quick, nice and easy on the trainer. So then when I get outside, I don't have to worry about trying to maintain a structure. Um, a low volume plan for me personally is also a lot less training stress than what my body can sustain in a week. 
So I know that the outdoor rides that I have, I have wiggle room. I don't have to just go out and soft pedal. I can go out and go on a, on a hard group ride, a couple of them, no problem. I can go for a long ride. I can do that because I have room with the low volume plan. Now, having said that, it may be different for you, but uh, that's the one way that I like to do it. When I'm, I try to actually tell myself, I find so many people like, yeah, I'm going to head out and go training. And I see him at a coffee mm-hmm. shop later on. And I'm like, nice training, bro. You know, that looks really, that looks like you're really getting fast. <laughs> yeah, Michael, and, I think, I think even if, if, if we nailed this, if we figured out how to perfectly replicate our indoor structure with outdoor workouts every day of the week, I would still spend two, maybe three days, no matter how good the weather, no matter how much ride time I had indoors because that's just where the quality is that's where it's easiest for me to build the most fitness in the least amount of time it's just the most effective way to train train a road or not uh indoors is is uh just where the quality is right and i i separate training and riding and and that's what that's what i was getting at with this with the coffee shop comment is if i'm gonna head out and i'm gonna train then i'm going to try to make it training outside it never really works out (laughs) very rarely inside, I can be sure that it will work out with my training. And then when I go outside, I can go riding and I may have intent, especially with mountain bikes, you know, you're constantly working on skills or something else. I always have some type of objective. Um, but I, hopefully that helps Michael on, on how to work that out. And having said that, like Nate said, it's always something that we toy around with and we want to find the best way to make you faster. And if there's a way that we can use outside uh, to do that, we would want to do it. So you have anything else to add, Nate? No, that's that's pretty much it. And I'm I'm the same boat. Is I can't take as much stress as you, but on the outside rides, I'm trying to do work on technique and uh, uh, pretty much TSS filler. So kind of the longer stuff. So in the summer, if Chad prescribes a two and a half hour endurance ride, I'd rather do that outside than inside. Although I, it's funny I say that, but I've noticed. I was just talking to somebody else at the company yesterday about this. I notice though, I, my fitness improves a lot more if I do that on the trainer, because mm-hmm. it's, there's something about not stopping pedaling. And I'm trying to be like a Nazi about it. Like I don't even want to like, you know, just stop for a second and stretch. Like it's even like little 10 second where you just back pedal or, or you don't pedal at all. Yeah. It, there's something about, I, I don't know the, the, what it does to your body, but not stopping for two and a half hours, which can't happen outside. It, mm-hmm. it it's really pushes my fitness forward. We it's, have a, it's tough. There's, I need, I there's need a, four extra days of the week. <laughs> there's a big mountain bike race, uh, here in this region on Saturday. And I unfortunately can't race it because the knee is still on the mend, but that race is over rolling Hills. And last year it was just under three hours was my time on that, on that race, which is really long for a cross country race, uh, at, for at least normally here in the States, generally the longest it'll be is an hour and a half, maybe two hours, but it's almost three hours. And I was, you had to pedal the whole time. There was hardly any time that you weren't pedaling and which is pretty rare for a mountain bike race. You generally have periods where you're descending. And that day was so much easier for me mentally because I went into it knowing, you know what, you've got this because you've done three hours on the trainer without a single pause. You know, Mm -hmm. you were pedaling the whole time. So yeah. Amen, Nate. Good call. All right. Simon's question. Hey everyone. I should start off by saying how much I enjoy the podcast. You're doing a great job and I hope you manage to keep it up during the summer. We, we intend to Simon. So he said, I had a question over how to adapt my training. I've cycled for many years from ages 21 to 50 and have mostly raced time trials up to 40 kilometers. I'm based here in the UK. 
Your online training plans have been great, and I've managed to follow the low-volume plans through the early season. Although I have not had a chance to test recently, I think my FTP rose to about 240 only on the base part of your program or of your training plans, which is only 60 away from my peak in 2008 of 310. I had just finished Sweet Spot Base Low Volume uh, 2, the second ver- or the second part of that, uh, fairly late in the season, and was looking to move or looking forward to moving on to the sustained power build. However, I've been crippled by lower back pain, which has stopped me from training effectively. And that meant that I will uh, that I have had to rethink my season. My first goal was a 40k race in June, but no way am I going to be ready for that when I can't even walk without pain at the moment. I'm having professional treatment for my back, which is working, but I was wondering where I should pick up the plan afterwards. I'm able to ride the stationary trainer without hurting myself, and have taken it easy over the last two weeks. When I get back on the bike again, am I looking at redoing some of Sweet Spot Base, or should I move into the build into the build plan? I know you have had similar questions on your podcast before, but it might be useful for others who have injured themselves in the early season. All the best. Keep up the good work. I've been using Trainer Road since the beta, I think, he says, and I hope to carry on with it for many years to come. Cheers, Simon. Yeah, cheers indeed. Uh, Good to have you with us. Yeah, Simon, this is all going to depend on how much you can tolerate and how much fitness you lose over the course of uh, your, your hiatus. Um, almost always, I recommend that riders start back with something easier, um, than they think they can handle just, just to see how things go, especially with an injury as severe as this. I mean, back pain can be debilitating. I just dealt with a brief spat of it and it was just a reminder of how fragile we actually are. Um, and then I just um, replied to, I think on slow twitch, a, a guy who has broken his back and is coming back from that. Obviously, you want to play it cautiously, and, and I almost always steer people toward the traditional base training route just to get a sense of where you are, just to maintain or rebuild that aerobic efficiency, aerobic fitness, <clears throat> and, and, and then go from there. Um, I for sure don't see you moving right back into the build. You're probably going to have to just backtrack a bit, even if it's just two, maybe three weeks of, of sweet spot base, or perhaps that traditional base before you even get into the sweet spot base. But in any case, play it cautiously, focus mostly on aerobic endurance, and then take it from there. I always tend to, or forgive me, I always tend to err on the side of, of caution with this one, uh, doing the makeup work, going back a little further, it may put yourself further behind, but with an injury, it's so easy to push yourself over the line too quickly. Um, and if you do that, you can get into a whole world of hurt. I know Nate, you're coming back from being sick. Um, and, oh, I I should say from surgery and And sick. I got sick at the end. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, you mentioned it just a little while ago, but what exactly is your plan for coming back? Like, how are you going about it? I I lowered my FTP and then I, I was dumb and I put it back up. I'm trying to, and then I've been doing, uh, just petite over and over because that was, that was kind of the, what was prescribed today. I think I'm supposed to do Mount Mount field and I'm trying to, I'm going to have to lower my FTP to from 295. I should probably be at 265 for these two workouts and then just do an FTP test. I actually feel pretty good. Like in general, I don't have, uh, like I, I don't have, I, it's not something with my, my, so the, my, I had a tonsillectomy and I got a sinus infection. It's not like back pain where if I go too much or I spend too much time in a position, it's going to jump back at me. My tonsils are now gone and they're not going to come back and jump back in my throat and hurt me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hopefully. Um, so I, I, I'm guessing what I, I need to do is do another eight minute test, get an actual FTP. Like that's, that's good for me now that I've lost weight and fitness. 
and work through it. I, I haven't decided yet if I should finish the build plan that I'm on or if I should jump um, back to like sweet spot. I'm probably going to try to finish the build just because I'm feeling physically a lot pretty good. Pretty good. I can, I'm getting up earlier and getting lots of sleep and that sort of thing. I'm your hungry, is, I'm, your I'm hungry to train. If that, yep. I'm hu- very hungry to train. Nice. Nice. Uh, Brian's question. He says, what are the best workouts to increase one minute power? What specific workouts within the trainer road software would you recommend? Um, yeah, Chad, so, go ahead. So Brian, I, I combed the workout catalog just a little bit and, and found some names and I'll give those to you in a second. Um, but what you're trying to do here is increase anaerobic capacity. Um, you're not necessarily looking, or at least you haven't specified, uh, to be able to repeat this sort of effort over and over again. Um, I, I'm assuming that's what you're working toward. You're not just going to do a one minute race and call it a day, but, uh, this type of training where you're trying to increase a capacity rather than exploit that capacity is, is all about, working really hard at very specific power levels and then resting really well before you do it again. You're, you're trying not to conter- or not to carry much fatigue into each subsequent repeat. So with, with you know, one minute power, you know, one minute efforts, but they, they don't have to be one minute. They can be shorter as well. They can be a little bit longer, but either way, they have to be full gas. So every time you do one, make sure you rest long enough that you can do the next one really well. We're trying to, to, to grow capacity here. We're trying to, in your case, or in the case of anaerobic power, recruit a whole lot of muscle and a very specific type of fiber. And, and that happens, that has to be done at really high outputs with lots of rest in between repeats. Um, in, in, in the workouts I picked out, and these are, you know, a couple of my favorite anaerobic capacity workouts are striped black giant, black Kawea and win, which is W Y N N E. And, and there, there are other workouts similar to those like Barnard and Joe Devell and San Joaquin, where you'll see those same efforts, but they're stacked super close together. Those are the ones you want to avoid when you're trying to develop capacity. Those are the ones you want to start to weave into your training plan when you're coming up on an event where you know, you're going to have to repeat those efforts again and again, and those are going to grow increasingly aerobic. That's a whole nother topic, but right now you want to build raw power and, and that's done with big efforts and long rests. What a specialty plan would if for this type of racing would he do um probably something in the mountain bike catalog since we don't have anything that's really specific to like track sprinting or anything of that nature so um what is it the short course xc or the gravity plan jonathan yeah yeah those two would be good what about yeah. crit yeah the crit plan would be good but the crit plan again is is it uh it primes you for racing crits which is repeating that power over and over again so it's more aerobic in nature and you're looking for more of an aerobic bump right here. Got it. And this is exactly where, you know, when the training camps are released, there will be um, anaerobic capacity. There is an anaerobic capacity training camp. And, and, and that's exactly what you do. So for a couple of weeks, four weeks, um, whatever uh, volume plan you choose, um, it, it's going to focus specifically on this one thing while maintaining other systems and then throw you back into your, your base build specialty wherever you were. So this is interesting, Chad, because I see a lot of cyclists going out to work on sprints. They'll do a sprint workout outside and what they'll do is they'll do, you know, a 30 second sprint. And then after that, with some type of specificity, and then they'll rest for 30 seconds to a minute and they'll go out and hammer it again. So, and, and 
what you're talking about is is that we should give ourselves enough time to recover in between that so then we can actually work at our at our full capacity yeah exactly so they're so they're working at at decreasing levels of that capacity because they're not allowing systems to replenish so Mm -hmm. so all they're doing is beating themselves down further and further which you know is is useful in in some contexts but not 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 developing capacity let's hit it hard recover well so that you can truly hit it hard again that would be useful so that the the format that we're saying isn't good for just increasing your one minute power mm-hmm. um the the format of stacking the intervals close that would be good for something like a crit racer or a cyclocross racer or somebody that's trying to work on being able to dole out those efforts repeatedly close together yeah if right? you're looking if you're looking for highest one minute power you have to be refreshed if you're looking to 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 build anaerobic tolerance stacking them close together has its has its use for sure but if you're looking but, to just raise that one minute power, it has to be done with rested legs. But two, when you're stacking them close together, you want to make sure you don't go the first one 400, mm-hmm. the second one 360, the and third that's what one happens. 300. Exactly. Yeah. Especially so, if you so, don't have a power meter. And, and if you know you can mm-hmm. do one minute at 400 watts, then you got to rest long enough so that you can do the next one at 400 watts and then the next one you know, close to 400 watts. And gradually that's going to start to decline, but it's not going to decline nearly as rapidly and, and fall as far off the mark that you're trying to achieve when you when you rest well between them. And if you're going to do something like uh, billots or something, 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, yep. that is more aerobic, then you're going to want to yeah. maintain that power the whole way through. Exactly. It's going to get very, so very hard at the end of your you'll set. You'll start a little bit low. Yeah, you'll you'll start at at a, at a effort level where you're like, oh, I can do this all day, and then soon enough that'll that'll start to <laughs> mount to the point where you realize, oh, nope, I can't do this for very much longer. But it's uh, you'll you'll pace that, so to speak, quite differently. Yeah, I think a lot of people are doing sprint workouts wrong, and hopefully that that clarified things for people. Um, yeah, yeah, good stuff. Hey, can, can we? Oh, this isn't a sprint. I have a question. Can we talk mm-hmm. about what we haven't talked about here? Proper sprint form on a road bike. Mm. Yeah. Can yeah, can I can I jump in on this really quick, Chad? Because sure, yeah. so, so yesterday, uh Chad and one of our engineers at uh Salvo, we call him that's his last name. One of our engineers, he came with us and uh we just did a nice little it's like the it's like the Hammerfest lunch ride type of a loop out by our place. Um, it's 20 miles, and that 20 miles you get a thousand feet of climbing, but it feels more or less rolling hill flattish the whole way. There's a few spots where you have kind of uh, some some marked climbs, but it's pretty rare. Um, I was in a few spots. I was going hard, and I've been on my mountain bike and not on my road bike for a long time, and I forgot how. First of all, there's zero wiggle room with the bike. <laughs> so any type of body movement gets trans- translated into that bike. And I think that I was experiencing for the first little bit, the same problem that most people experience on a road bike when they sprint, or a lot of people do instability with my back end. My back end was coming up off the ground a bit. And I see that a lot from people that are sprinting and it's, uh, really it's because of proper or improper technique. Um, but Chad, yeah, I think we all probably have things to, to add in on this, but Chad, go ahead. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, first off, um, maybe the number one point is you sprint in your drops. You, you don't sprint anywhere else. You, you obviously don't hold on to the tops of the bars, and you definitely don't hold on to the hoods. 
getting getting the hook parts of your bars. Um, that's that's where the most torque is going to be derived, and that's also what pulls you into the lowest position, which is um, probably a second point I'd make. Which aerodynamics is far more a concern than some people realize when it comes to sprinting. Um, there's no sense in, in in riding tall and battling the wind any more than you need to. So get down low, and I'm not talking Caleb you and low. You can you can get that low if you can swing that, but I watch that guy sprint and it terrifies me. I feel like he's going <laughs> to fall over the front of his bike. For, for but, those that haven't seen that, by the way, Caleb you and his chin is actually pretty much on the level of where the bottom of his head tube meets the fork. Yeah, he, like he, he, he his could chin kiss isn't his far tire. from the tire. It's, yeah, it's and he's and his bars his bars are actually like at his rib cage. So so like at the base of his rib cage. So a, the majority of his torso is over the front of the stem. It's 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 unreal. Yeah, there's uh, it's a, there's a YouTube clip that catches a, a, a race finish, and I I honestly thought it was doctored. I couldn't believe that was physically possible. <laughs> but I mean, even if you compare like someone like Kittle to Cavendish, Cavendish doesn't have the strength that Kittle has, but Cavendish is is he stays low. I mean, he's smaller too, but he also stays really low, so he's quite aerodynamic. Um, and then beyond that, it's just you know figuring out how to how to put out big watts and, and and a lot of people do their sprints over geared it's not really a sprint it ends up being a mash so you know you have to figure out mm-hmm. what sort of gearing you can ramp up to speed quickly how many times you need to shift little things like that that you can only learn through experience um but it's uh, a a finer point and, and I, this is an arguable one is just just how much your bike moves i'm a firm believer in that the more the bike laterally moves side to side the longer your line, the more, the more, uh, the less progress you're making forward. And some riders, man, they just lay that bike from side to side to side. And I don't know if that's strategic where they're trying to clear space like you would with really wide elbows, or if that's just their, their lack of control, but it terrifies me and it, and it seems wasteful. So I'm a firm believer in just keeping the, 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 the minimal lateral movement and, and moving forward with the, the, the greatest watts you can control. Yeah, if One you look at that, Cav, um, when Cav sprints, his bike moves side to side much more so than Kittle's. Um, and it's interesting, and I and I think that it's a conscious effort by Kittle to to not do that. I'm not saying that that's why Cav is quote slower than Kittle, right? <laughs> because he's certainly there. There are other reasons to that, I believe. But um, you're completely right. If you were to look in theory, the the fastest line in a sprint is going to be straight and yeah. zero deviation from that. So if you can do that now, granted, you're leaning your bike over to allow yourself to get a, a, a better, really a, a better torque angle, if there would be such a thing. So allow yourself to put more torque into the pedals, um, which can, which can certainly help, but you don't want to get, it's super easy to go over that. And especially it's just like pain faces. If you think you're sprinting really hard, many times we make it look like it and we're just wasting energy and we shouldn't be doing that. Um, you definitely should should try to be as efficient as possible while you do that. I find um, two things for me that really help uh, with sprints, um, and we'll go into more detail, I'm sure, but two things that I always remind myself of is you can get lower. That's one thing that I always tell myself whenever I'm sprinting is you can get lower. And then I always try to tell myself when I'm sprinting through is to keep my leg speed up and not shift too early because we're always anxious to shift and grab those gears. Like Chad said, we grab them too early and suddenly we're spinning a massive gear, putting out a lot of force, but we're hardly spinning that gear. And that doesn't necessarily translate to speed. Remember your goal isn't to push hard on the pedals. Your goal is to go faster than anybody else next to you. So because of that, 
you should always be just try to hold off on that gear shift a little longer and then, uh, and stay low. Those two things really helped me. So the one tip that got me, this is when I was first writing, actually, Josh Rennie told me this is, uh, he's Josh Rennie, just a local writer, but from a 900 watt spit sprint to the first time I did it, I did a 1500 watt sprint and he said, lock your back. Your back should be like uh, flexed. And I wasn't doing this and, uh, kind of think of your back as like this piece of carbon fiber. So when I'm pumping with my arms and pulling on the handlebars and I'm pushing through the legs, my back is just going to be so stiff and rigid that it's not going to lose any power. And I've noticed that other times where I sprint, where I kind of like, I don't do that. And I just kind of like, you know, it's, I'm kind of noodle around in my back. My wattage on my power meter isn't, isn't as high as it would be if I was just, if it was a, if a carbon fiber, like piece, piece of carbon fiber in my spine, and yep. it's just not going to move. Yeah. So that's try a, that that's out. A, like, yeah. that's a great point. Um, uh, because otherwise you're just losing energy through that. Look ahead is another thing. Don't look down. Everyone's always tempted to look down and you see a lot of guys, if you look at Kittle and Cav, it looks weird. Like it looks like their head, like they're almost like bobbleheads because their face is so upright and staring straight ahead when they sprint. It looks really strange, but that's because those guys know that in that moment, it's extremely important for them to look straight ahead for safety reasons. And then also number two, so they can see lines coming up and adjust for that and keep a straight line. Those things are extremely important. You may think it may feel faster to drop your head down and you feel like you can get more into it, but train yourself to sprint looking ahead. Everyone else will thank you for it. (laughs) And yeah, you might be able to put out a few extra Watts with your face down, but you're not going to win the race with your face down. Like you, you, it's, it's so great to see the tour de France or any big cycling races when they have the picture from above, there is so much movement where these guys, (laughs) they go around. You can't just not, it's just not a drag race where everyone has a perfectly clear line and they're Mm -hmm. like horses at the carnival, you know, where they're just kind of going in their own line. Mm -hmm. You, you want to, while you're sprinting too, to, to get a draft where you can, and come around that person. And if you're not looking, you're going to cause a crash. And every, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it's just horrible. Yeah. What, one, uh, two other things I, are, I always do, and this is a, well, the first thing, big vote for electronic group sets. Your shifts are much more stealth. I know yesterday, Chad and I were rolling into a sprint together side by side. And I knew that as soon as I grabbed that gear, that next gear that I needed, that Chad was going to know that it was on and I was going to lose because Chad's faster. So, um, so because of that, make, try to make your shifts discreet if you can, uh, if it's going to announce the time that you're going to go, that can really help. Um, but when you, when you sprint, I always like to, it's easy to just kind of let your emotions go and just get, say all, okay, it's go time, 100% everything on the table right now. But I try, and granted there are different strategies to this, but I always try to sprint at 95% when I'll go, when I launch my sprint. So then I have that little extra just in case somebody else next to me is going at a hundred percent and then I can, you know, just come over them. Um, last year that helped for me sprinting against a tiny little dude who's just a hundred percent muscle and a lot better sprinter than I was. But because I timed it right, I was able to, uh, and dosed my e- effort, right. I was able to just outlast him just enough to get about half a wheel on him. So, um, yeah. And that you know, actually reminds me yeah. there's, you don't turn your sprint off until you're across the line. There have been too many times where people are up the road and, and are riders up the road, strong sprinter, but perhaps he went too early and, and 
those things do come back. Someone gets a big gap on you. You think it's over. You shut it down. Well, it is over because you just quit. But it, it just yesterday with Jonathan, he got away from me, but I dug. I kept on sprinting as hard as I could, just in the off chance that he faded. And he faded just enough for me to get up. And I don't even know. I may have gotten him at the line. But the, the point is, a sprint isn't just that initial five or eight seconds. It can be 10, 15, 20, 25 seconds. So it doesn't end until you cross that line. Yeah. And, and in terms of bike throws, I see a lot of people focus on bike throws and they start that bike throw before they, they even get to the line. Keep in mind a bike throw is only beneficial in that initial surge. And as soon as your arms have reached full extension, it's actually going to be detrimental to you. So if you can time it so that that bike throw, you reach full extension with your arms, right? When your front wheel crosses the line, then you're good. But even then question would it have been faster for you to just sprint through mm-hmm. or did you need to do that bike throw? I know bike throws are dramatic and we like to make our lives a cute little Disney movie whenever mm-hmm. we sprint, but let's be real. If you just throwing your bike forward that may, and stopping pedaling, that may equal a slower overall speed in that last little section of, yeah. of, of, I have, of the I course. Have absolutely no faith in bike throws that you're, you're always going to be better served by one extra pedal stroke. So don't save the bike throws, just pedal. Yep. I agree. I agree by that. So, all right, well that covers it for today. Thanks for joining us. Remember you can submit your questions to us at trainerroadcom slash podcast or with the hashtag ask trainer road. You can use that on Twitter, or on Instagram, and you can find us on Snapchat at trainer road. And then you can uh, ask your questions there too. Uh, you can find this podcast and share it from SoundCloud, iTunes, uh, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Thanks everybody. Bye-bye.